And welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, Emily Jaszynski joins us to talk about the red and blue divide in America. With polarization at an all-time high, we'll delve into the media's role in causing division in this country, as well as what we can expect during a Joe Biden presidency. Is he really here to unify? But before we bring her on, a little bit more about Emily. Emily Jaszynski is culture editor at The Federalist. She previously covered politics as a commentary writer for the Washington Examiner. Prior to joining the Examiner, Emily was a spokeswoman for Young America's Foundation. She's interviewed leading politicians and entertainers and appeared regularly as a guest on major television news programs, including Fox News Sunday and Media Buzz. Her work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, Real Clear Politics, and more. Finally, Emily serves as director of the National Journalism Center. Emily, a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, truly. And there's so much I want to dive into with you. You cover culture. You cover pop culture as well. You have been covering the Donald Trump presidency for the past four years. Before we get into what we can expect in the next four years with President Biden, what was it like for you just generally and broadly to cover the the former president, President Trump, especially since he came that came from pop culture. He's a pop culture icon. And here he became president. What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, it was overwhelming because every single day um, something happened, or at least it felt like something happened. And on many days, it felt like 10 things happened um, that sort of directly related to my beat, which is kind of understanding um, our political happenings in the context of our culture and specifically our pop culture. And so it, it really was overwhelming because it felt like every single day this was, um, you know, it, it, it was like a, an explosion of um, an explosion of elements of this like larger, this larger conversation. So it was that like everything was happening every single day. It wasn't the type of thing where you would spend a month kind of probing one particular issue um, or particular issues as they cropped up. It was that every day it was a race to kind of digest and, um, you know, kind of digest and understand what was was happening in this context. And that's unusual in politics because, um, you know, we politics and particularly political media is so often focused on the horse race, um, on who's going to win New Hampshire and why, or what's going to happen with this bill in Congress and why. Um, and, you know, the, the Trump presidency was just jam packed with cultural fodder and cultural change and even pop cultural change. So it was it was overwhelming because, you know, you kind of have to digest these things on a daily basis um, or on an hourly basis uh, while also remaining remaining grounded and anchored and, um, you know, not you know, tripping over yourself to have the, the hot take or the best opinion, um, but also doing your readers a service, um, which is, you know, bringing informed perspectives and, and reasonable arguments. So, you know, that's a, that's a long way of saying it was, it was very overwhelming. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, I I think we're all exhausted. 
it was just a four years of be- between Donald Trump making so much news himself, but also those who wanted to take him down and going through impeachment and just the Russian hoax and all of this. It was a lot. And one of the elements that I found so fascinating about his presidency is that prior to him becoming president, he was thought of so well by Hollywood. Here he had, of course, his famous TV show. He had been in movies. I just saw Home Alone over the Christmas again. Of course, he's in Home Alone. <laughs> and so there was this major shift of him being somebody who was thought of well. Maybe you mock him because of his hair, but he was somebody who was in the Hollywood circles to somebody who became this very hated man by by the left, by Hollywood. What was that like to see the shift? And what do you think the main cause of that shift was? Yeah, it was odd. And, um, you know, I don't I don't mean to obnoxiously fact check you, of course, but uh, Donald Trump was in Home Alone, too. Very key. The second one. Yes. Got to get that. straight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, he has a great little appearance in there, which was actually um, organized in exchange for them filming at the plaza, uh, which at the time he owned. So, yeah, and that's a, that goes to how close he was and how closely knit he was into um, these Hollywood circles. He, you know, The Apprentice was a Mark Burnett show, and he had great relationships. I mean, one of the best windows into how really, like, ingrained in Hollywood Donald Trump was is that he had a Comedy Central roast. Um, that's really something they only give to A-listers. It's definitely something they give to polarizing A-listers, you know, Roseanne, Joan Rivers, Rob Lowe. I guess Rob Lowe's not all that polarizing, um, but not anymore, at least. But he, you know, had this whole dais of celebrities, big celebrities, roast him. And they, you know, usually say we only roast the ones we love. And that is really true. And that's been true over the course of uh, Comedy Central's roast series. And so that's, that tells you kind of what you needed to know, is that a lot of people wanted to be really close to Donald Trump because um, I think really in large part, Celebrity Apprentice was a huge vehicle for people like Lisa Rinna, for instance, to revive their careers. Um, So some of these A-listers who are washed up, uh, B-listers who want to, um, you know, promote a product. So they want to get their name back into the media and have, you know, the paparazzi getting them into magazines and blogs and all that good stuff. The Celebrity Apprentice really was a vehicle for career revival. And so people wanted to be close to Donald Trump and the Trumps for that reason. The show was super successful and it did a lot of people a lot of favors. So you can kind of see where the transactional nature of the relationship was. He's supremely entertaining. Um, It's just, it's hard to even like, you know, there, there was it was hard for Saturday Night Live and everyone to even mock him because he was it was just so funny. But from the moment he came down the the golden escalator in June of 2015, Hollywood's relationship with him, um, most of Hollywood, that isn't to say, I mean, he's had more celebrity support than pretty much any Republican politician ever um, in recent memory. But most of Hollywood split from him right away because um, of his his comments on illegal immigration. So it was really right from the get-go they realized um, the media was putting him through this filter of a far-right politician, um, even though, you know, he had been behind things like the birther rumor or whatever for a matter of years, but it wasn't really until he got that the political media spotlight and the political media cast him as a far-right fringe figure that uh, Hollywood immediately divorced um, because it's bad for publicity, it's bad for their images, and there's now this, I mean, the largest the the most important trend in this country is how our newsrooms and boardrooms and writers' rooms have been overtaken by 
the fringe progressive ideology that percolated for years in uh, academia. And so after that arrived in those newsrooms and writers' rooms and boardrooms, I mean, there's just, as a celebrity, it, it would just be too toxic to touch Donald Trump. Someone who I think is probably happy he's not going to have a second term, I've wondered about this, is his wife, Melania Trump. I I just have this feeling that she's glad to go back to whatever normal is after this. She was ridiculed up and down the entire four years. We've talked about it on this show, but when you take a look at how she was covered versus a Michelle Obama, what's your overwhelming take on just how she was treated during her time? It's outrageous, and it's a really crystal clear illustration of um, media bias. It's it's just kind of perfect. Like Melania Trump is an immigrant um, who has a an interesting backstory. Um, you know, made her way and uh, achieved personal success, and is stunningly beautiful um, to the extent that that's relevant to media coverage. It certainly was under Michelle Obama. Um, and this is like, I, I think, you know, I, I hope people write, I, I hope somebody writes a good book about this because there's an easy way to write a really bad book about this and we'll get a lot of um, <laughs> yeah. hot takes on this. Um, and there's just so much, there's so much like very thinly sourced gossip that circulates about Melania Trump. And we know that that was obviously, especially in the early days of this White House uh, or of, of former President Trump's White House, that was, um, you know, a daily occurrence. We had to deal with this, like, barely substantiated gossip that was making its way into the pages of The New York Times and other major corporate media outlets. But Melania Trump was really a target of that. Um, And some of it has to do with the infighting in the White House. But mostly what it has to do with is that um, she's married to Donald Trump. So all of her other um, all of her other positive attributes, her her beauty, her fashion sense, her background, they are all irrelevant to the corporate media and to critics of Donald Trump and to the left more broadly because she is supportive of Donald Trump. Um, and so that doesn't just apply to Melania Trump. That applies to just about every Trump supporter who is especially now, um, but for the past four or five years, has been dismissed immediately, reflexively, as a, as a deplorable or as um, a racist or a bigot simply because they support Donald Trump. And they could have many reasons for doing that that have absolutely nothing to do with bigotry. Um, and so, yeah, I think, as you said, it's, it's exhausting. I imagine it's been especially exhausting for Melania. I don't have many good sources in Melania world, to be honest with you. But um, my read of the situation is that she's really supportive of her husband's politics and um, the leaked audio that CNN got that was captured by her yeah. former friend, which is just such a, it's just like, it's how hated it. Yeah. The fact that, right. The fact that <laughs> that even it. made its way into the media. Right. Right. Um, so, it, you know, the, she's someone who probably knew she's not stupid. She knew people were taping her. She knew that there were possibilities of leaks, et cetera, et cetera. So I think probably she's personally exhausted by all of it. Um, but I don't think, her politics have been changed or worn down at all. And I want to get back to just coverage of Trump before we move on to Trump voters, because I do think that's where the media attacks are going to now. And I know you were even at uh, the the rally that the president held a couple weeks ago now, when tragically after that rally, rioters broke into the Capitol. So I want to talk about your experience. But I'm curious of the media landscape right now as Joe Biden has taken office. So with a Donald Trump here, you use the word he's entertaining, whether you loved him or hated him. He was great TV. He knows how to play to an audience. I would even say the best thing that happened to Jim Acosta 
was Donald <laughs> Trump because Jim Acosta was able to become the celebrity journalist trying to take on Donald Trump. So even though many in the media hated Donald Trump, it did give them an avenue to boost their own profile, to get lots of ratings, to cover to their coverage, whatever their narrative may be. At least he gave them something to cover. We already know that probably the coverage of Joe Biden is going to be different. We've seen that in the election, seen that during the transition time and the questions they don't ask him, how they hide stories related to Hunter Biden, for example. What do you think the media are going to do in a Joe Biden presidency when, frankly, Joe Biden is not the most entertaining person in front of the camera. It's not a character flaw, but it's just the reality. Um, very few people have an entertaining quality like Donald Trump. What do you think is going to happen to ratings and what are they going to do to try to gin up more ratings for their networks? Yeah, this is an absolutely crucial point. Um, and like I have the misfortune, but also the privilege of covering this stuff every day and following it very closely as you do. And um, I have to say the most crucial point for uh, people to the most crucial lens to see this next era of um, media coverage through is that they have really definitively decided to reject objectivity. Now, some of them do that explicitly. Some of them do that under the guise of um, objective journalism, which is worse, in my opinion. So somebody like Jim Acosta, he doesn't make the argument that it's necessary to drop his objectivity to cover Trump. He pretends he's still objective. And CNN ran those famous apple or banana um, commercials over the course of the Trump right. administration in which they <laughs> bragged about being able to distinguish between fact and opinion and then spent the entire Trump presidency disguising opinion as fact. Um, but a lot of the media has actually arrived at this intellectual argument that it is impossible to be objective when it comes to matters of bigotry and when it comes to racism and sexism. The problem is that they define racism and sexism in a way that implicates all Republicans and even moderate Democrats in racism and bigotry and sexism. So what we have is a large contingent of the media that believes that they must be, um, you know, they, this is actually the dominant view. And there's still some, you know, old school journalists who wish that their publications would stick to the facts and believe that the country would be better for it and the country would be a more harmonious place. And, um, you know, the, the red versus blue wouldn't be so painful right now. But, um, you know, this is a really important thing to understand is that the dominant opinion in journalism going forward is that um, there, there is no objectivity when it comes to basically covering the Republican Party, because they've accepted this lie and this uh, very false argument that the Republican Party is dominated by bigots. And so going forward, that's going to show up in all of the coverage. Some of it is going to be explicit. Some of it is going to say, I can't be a fair journalist when it comes to Republicans because they are necessarily racist. Some of it is going to be uh, the opposite. Some of it's going to say, hey, we're just calling balls and strikes here while uh, that journalist or network believes that Republicans are all necessarily racist. So this creates a really, really complicated situation for the public going forward. It's going to sow further distrust in the media as an institution. It's going to continue dividing us because people are going to see every day the glaring hypocrisy of the way the press treats Biden and treats his administration um, in comparison to the Trump administration. Trump's ongoing presence in the Republican Party is going to continue to highlight that hypocrisy. It's going to continue to see these high-profile, wealthy, um, insulated, beltway journalists 
um, you know, insulting a wide swath of the country. So I think we're headed into a, a, an increasingly dark period. Um, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but it is true that that, uh, that belief has been adopted and is the dominant opinion in the media. And so, you know, there's, there's really no positive place to go from there. A common question that I get from friends is say, where do I go to just get straight news? And that seems to be a question a lot of people want to know. It's where do I go? And I think one of the things we, we have seen, and there are positives to this, but there is this ability to choose where we get our news. How do I want to consume it? Where do I want to go? But what that tends to do is then people just getting news from what they like to hear. So if I have this perspective, I'm going to go here. And it's fascinating to me to talk to people who have a completely different perspective of an issue that's going on because it's covered in completely different ways. So when you talk about this divide and how polarization is going to increase when it, with, with the media, does it get to a point where people just tune it out because they realize that's there? Or are most Americans consuming news and thinking whatever outlets they get is giving them the full picture? Yeah, I think part of the problem is that people are in both camps. Um, and, you know, I don't begrudge the people who are turning out the news at all. I fully understand that. Um, and I, you know, also don't begrudge the people who have no idea who to trust. So they put their faith in Donald Trump. And that's something that we've seen, you know, a lot of Trump supporters say. And I talked to a lot of Trump supporters um, on January 6th when that rally turned into a riot. Um, and a lot of the peaceful people who were there on their way down from the president's speech at the Ellipse to the Capitol, you know, they all told me they really don't even know who to trust anymore. And so they believe what Donald Trump says. And again, I don't blame anybody for thinking that way at all, because you would have to put an enormous amount of time and effort into figuring out um, how to read the news anymore. And even as somebody who does this professionally, I struggle with that sometimes because, um, you know, outlets that you can trust aren't you know, right 100% or even 80% of the time. So it's, it's an enormously difficult undertaking. Um, and, you know, I think that's a huge part of the problem is I, I have a friend, Sagar Jetty, who's the host of uh, Rising on, mm-hmm. on Hill yeah. TV. And he, he points out that, you know, this fetishization, fetishization of objectivity um, in the media did not always exist in American politics, that we used to, um, as many people know, have very partisan outlets just kind of bickering back and forth. And the public, which is smart and should be trusted to understand the news, uh, would just kind of decide based on, you know, knowing the biases of the different publications and writers, what to believe. They had to parse through the media and figure out where the fact was in the center of it. Um, And so as mass media came about with technological advances, including, you know, the rise of television and radio and magazines and all of that good stuff, um, we started to fetishize objectivity because it um, those 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 um, channels had to appeal to a wide audience. Um, they couldn't just appeal to partisans for the most part. Um, so it's it's not impossible that if we push the press to be open about their biases, that we get to actually a better place. You know, if you have a left and a right media, um, folks who want to be informed can, you know, take the effort to to figure out what's right and what's wrong. I think the ongoing problem is we have a media where a chunk of it still pretends that they are objective and in some cases believes that they are objective, um, but uh, they aren't. And to me, that's the huge, huge problem going forward. 
And as you just said, you were in Washington, D.C. with Trump supporters on that day when the riots did break out on Capitol Hill. First of all, what was it like being on the ground? And second, how do you think many in the media did in covering that story fairly, especially in comparison to the other riots that you had covered earlier that year, the Black Lives Matter riots? Yeah, it was really upsetting. Um, I was on the I I was sort of on the um, west side of the Capitol where the scaffolding is set up for uh, the the scaffolding was set up for the inauguration of Joe Biden, um, which a lot of people probably saw videos and pictures of people having climbed up to the top of and it was a windy day. So it was shaking um, that, you know, even outside the building seemed dangerous enough. But I was watching people sort of shove their way up a staircase to get into the building, hundreds of people just shoving onto that staircase um, into the building. I saw people climbing the outside wall of the Capitol. Um, it was really, really chaotic. It was really um, just nasty and, and negative. And it was very different from the uh, crowd that was gathered at the speech um, just about, you know, 45 minutes earlier. It took them about 45 minutes to make their way down Constitution Avenue. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of people who were there because they were just sick of, you know, being called deplorables and they trusted Donald Trump and they genuinely believed the election was stolen and they uh, wanted to come to Washington to be a part of the movement to solve that problem. Um, And so it was infuriating to see um, Americans infiltrate the Capitol building uh, violently. And it it was just, it was hard. It was really, really hard to watch actually. Um, And so I think the the media coverage, there are a lot of journalists who I might not agree with and might, might think do a really terrible job on a daily basis who did a great job inside the Capitol building and in the crowd. Um, It's, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but they were in a dangerous situation and I think they did a good job. I was watching ABC news's 24 hour special on the situation and they filtered it all really through the social justice lens of how the police treated rioters at uh, the White House or what they refer to as peaceful protesters at the White House and and in DC. Um, And and Beverly, you still lived in DC when a lot of this was going on um, as you've written about. And, you know, I was there covering it and ABC didn't even, when they were sort of flashing back between the Capitol riot and the White House demonstrations, they didn't even mention that Antifa was trying to pull down a statue of Andrew Jackson. And that's why the police had to come in and use um, chemical irritants to push the line back. Like that literally was not even mentioned in this ABC special. Um, And they said they chalked up the rioting in downtown DC, which shattered. I mean, it caused so much money worth of damage, shattered windows, shattered buildings, stole tons of dollars worth of merchandise. They literally said that it was sporadic and, you know, they totally downplayed that. It was only mentioned once. Um, And so I think what we're going to see going forward is the media will treat the events of January 6th rightfully as a, a, um, a watershed moment and uh, in a really historically painful and historically tragic day in American history, but they're going to filter it through the social justice lens. And I think the ABC News special is a really early indication of how it's going to be treated by the the corporate press going forward. And, and something you do cover when you talk about social justice, you, you do cover the issue of just woke ideology and silencing speech. And we're seeing a lot of that in social media. Big tech has been a big focus um, with them taking actions against Parler, for example, the conservative or the free speech competitor to Twitter. 
where do you see things going with a democratically led House and Senate and presidency when it comes to big tech, especially since many of them are donors of or were donors of Joe Biden? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the tech industry is sort of um, reviled by a lot of Democrats in the same way that it's reviled by a lot of Republicans. They don't have a lot of bipartisan goodwill on Capitol Hill anymore, but Democrats want them to be more censorious. They want Facebook and Twitter to be more censorious, whereas Republicans you know, think it's outrageous that they're censorious basically at all. Um, you know, with the, the exception of some really obvious cases. Um, and they do that with such imbalance. You know, it's, it's constantly, I mean, every single day, there are multiple examples of tech treating um, conservatives different than leftists. And so, I, I mean, I think that's a, a huge element of all of this is that when I talk about how woke ideology has moved from the classroom into boardrooms, newsrooms, and writers' rooms, Boardrooms is really the key element of that because these tech um, CEOs and executives have amassed an incredible, a, a truly incredible amount of power over our lives. And it's an amount of power that we couldn't have fathomed when Mark Zuckerberg was talking about, you know, just a decade ago, how his Facebook was going to make the world a happier, more connected, harmonious place. Um, and, and so when you have an industry that has so much power over the American people and daily power, by the way, too, you know, this isn't just some power that's exercised every Tuesday when we go to X business. This is something that happens on a minute by minute, second by second basis as tech is exerting power over um, all of our lives in, in an enormous way. Um, and you have an industry like that with that level of power and influence that basically holds um, the perspective that, Anybody slightly to the right of, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is bigoted. Well, that's a huge problem. And again, in the same way that the the that perspective's infiltration and grip on the corporate media is going to sow further, deeper, more painful divisions, I think the tech industry's um, adoption of that idea is going to do the very same. And working in concert. That's where I mean things start to feel truly hopeless, and I'm not trying right. to be you know it, nothing is I ever get hopeless, you. but <laughs> it does feel that way. <laughs> there's there's a big fight ahead, that's for sure. And so since we're ending on a dark note, I thought I would ask one final question to to leave on a brighter note. There aren't many people I can ask this question to, but you are a fellow <laughs> lover of reality TV, and we both watch The Real Housewives. I'm not sure all the series that you watch, but I watch a decent amount. I am not enjoying the most recent episodes of The Real Housewives because they're so focused on them learning about COVID. So we're going like 10 months back. I don't want to relive COVID. I don't want to relive that. Yeah. Are you finding the same thing? Like, it's just, I don't, I don't want, I want to be escape. I don't want to see you deal with COVID. Am I the only one? Yeah, no, no, you're not the only one at all. And this, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, <laughs> and I knew where this was going. I'm so grateful. Uh, but yes, no, that's a huge thing. And it gets to what a lot of people uh, the central reason a lot of people watch The Real Housewives is really for luxury and to have the juxtaposition of, of luxury with their um, misbehavior and their personal tragedies because it's a super interesting tension. But yes, when you have The Real Housewives of Orange County locked in their houses and filming on their iPhones um, and they're in their sweats and unhappy and miserable uh, and not even like together and they're isolated it's just such an unpleasant reminder of the uncertainty 
like it's hard to laugh at because it's they're consumed by the same uncertainty and anxiety that all of us were consumed with. And that's just like not what anybody watches the Real Housewives to experience. I don't know if you're watching Southern Charm, but it's the same thing on Southern Charm, right? It's just like, I don't, I don't need this. (laughs) I'm like, I, it's already a hard time. We get it. We get it. We're trying to escape from it. It doesn't happen. (laughs) No, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Well, I so appreciate you coming on. And and I think this is an important part, too. I appreciate your writing that focuses not just on politics, but also the pop culture aspect, because so many young people, many people much younger than me, even people younger than you, they're they're consuming news in a completely different way. And I know you're always up on those trends as well and what they're watching and how they're using social media. So thank you so much for your objectivity as you report and bringing us the news. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you joining us today. Absolutely. I appreciate even all that you do. And this is a great podcast. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.